Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.6, Virginia in the 1690s. We have spent a lot of time on this podcast lately talking about the events up in the New England colonies. Other than a brief peek back in Episode 3.1, where we spent virtually all of our time in Maryland, we have not spent much time in the South since we wrapped up with Bacon's Rebellion and the aftermath of it. This week, we are going to drop back into Virginia and pick up the story as we march towards the beginning of the 18th century. Now, I obviously know that you have all desperately missed Edmund Andros since we last left him back in England, probably thinking that we are done with the Andros-heavy episodes. Well, everybody, I have got some exciting news. This week, we are in for an Andros-heavy episode, and I know you are all just as excited for it as I am. As we have discussed previously, despite the turmoil throughout the rest of the colonies, Virginia was largely spared the upheavals that we saw throughout the Glorious Revolution. While theories abound as to why Virginia remained peaceful during the Glorious Revolution, the most likely answer relates back to the outcome of Bacon's Rebellion. The colony had their upheaval, and had little interest in going in that direction again during the 1680s and on into the 1690s. The biggest concern throughout the colony had become the falling price of tobacco combined with overproduction. This had in turn led to the tobacco riots during the 1680s that saw Virginians burning tobacco supplies. The hope of this move was to reduce the supply, thus drive up global prices. One of the most profound changes to come to Virginia in the aftermath of Bacon's Rebellion was a reorganization of the political and social structure of the colony. In the years prior to Bacon's Rebellion, what had emerged in the colony was generally a twin structure. You had the leading class within the colony, the landowners. This was the group that fell under the leadership of Berkeley. This is the group that ran the political systems and therefore ran the colony. The other group was the tenants. This was the group that constantly bristled against those same landlords. They were the ones who felt ignored by the colonial elites and felt so enraged by the growing power of that class. This is what leads to Bacon's Rebellion and is something that we spent numerous episodes discussing in far more detail. The aftermath of the rebellion was an English occupation that was extraordinarily unpopular. This reorganized the groups within the colony and drove that group that had formerly been in the class loyal to Berkeley to align with the planters in opposition to the English incursion. To be clear, what we see in Virginia is not ever going to lead to the events that are analogous to what we see in late 1680s Massachusetts. There will not be an angry mob out there seeking to expel the royal governor, like the colonists did to Andros. With that said, however, what follows in the decades after Bacon's Rebellion is a general acceptance that certain people in society were more powerful than other groups, thus establishing the necessity of having a ruling class. This would stand to protect the colonists from the worst inclinations of the English being sent across the Atlantic. As we will see today with Edmund Andros, he would have been more than happy to snuff out the internal political structures. However, Andros would quickly find that acceptance and patronage by the Virginia ruling class was a powerful feature of the colony and was one that was ultimately necessary for a peaceful relationship with the Virginia colonists. With the colony having evolved since the rebellion, the question shifts to just how Edmund Andros would find himself back as a governor in North America. 
On one hand, this may come as something of a surprise. Andros had spent his entire life as a pure example of a company man for House Stewart. Andros's family had been loyal to the Stuarts since the time of Charles I and had followed the royal family into exile. Andros had done his best in the Dominion to control the flood of information coming in about the events of William III's rise to power in England and made clear his early intentions to defend the colony for King James II. However, we do know that the bad feelings held against Andros in the wake of the Glorious Revolution had largely subsided by the time he had returned to London. Following the return of Andros to England, he quickly moved to establish himself as a loyal subject of his new king. Andros, now in his mid-50s, was too old at this point to do much in the way of serving the king as a soldier. However, he did still offer up his services. Andros proposed that he should act as a spy, traveling to Versailles under the auspices of meeting with his old boss, James II. While there, Andros could spy on the French and report back. Ultimately, William did not take him up on this offer. However, the entire thing had been convincing enough to prove that Andros could be trusted. It is also important to consider that William III really differed very little in his colonial outlook as compared to either Charles II or James II. All three men believed in a system where England proper ruled supremely over their colonies. None of the three men believed that the colonists held the same rights and privileges as those back at home. This, of course, is a worldview that Andrews himself could very easily get behind. Sure, management had changed, but really the new guy in charge was not coming in and changing up anything significant. William and Mary both recognized that Andrews was, if nothing else, a stickler for the rules. For a man like William, who was busy trying to impose his royal prerogative over a vast empire, Andros was exactly the kind of guy he needed. Andros would enforce the will of the new king. That is something that he could be sure of. Moreover, Andros had spent his entire life serving England. Yes, that time was spent serving the Stuarts and essentially James, who had been close with him for so long, but Andros was an older guy now it was time for him to enjoy the fruits of his labors. This is to say nothing of the changing of the political tides within England itself. By the time that Andros was looking for a new job, the Tories had become the leading political party and were supportive of making sure that as many colonial governors as possible were loyal to the cause. Andros, himself a Tory, fit that bill nicely. With all of the pieces falling into place, in February of 1692, Edmund Andros was named the governor of Virginia. This came much to the chagrin of then-acting governor, Francis Nicholson, who by all rights was pretty upset with the decision. It was reported from another old friend of ours, Edward Randolph, that the entire incident helped drive a wedge between Nicholson and Andros that would never really be mended. It is, of course, an interesting thing altogether that Nicholson fared as well as he did considering that he had just basically noped out of New York when Jacob Leisler started his rebellion. As we talked about a few episodes ago, however, do not feel too terribly sorry for Francis Nicholson. He is going to get another shot at things and will remain in our story for just a bit longer. Upon taking the job, Andros found himself in control over a much different colony than what he had experienced in New England. 
For one, he is not going to have to wade through the complex religious situation that caused so much animosity towards him. Virginia was largely an Anglican colony. And while religion certainly was important, you also do not have a system like in Massachusetts, where entrance into the government was predicated upon a person's religious beliefs. Andros, an Anglican himself, would fit in nicely with the majority of the Virginia population. Virginia also stood apart from Massachusetts as they had what was a valuable cash crop in tobacco. Of course, we know that there is a lot of tension regarding that cash crop, and the colonists were desperate to control the supply of tobacco in the face of seemingly stagnant demand. However, there was still a whole lot of money tied up in the tobacco trade. That isn't, however, to state that all was great in Virginia, and that Andros would be able to kick back and relax either. Well, the colony was not affected to the same degree as the New England colonies, or Maryland, by the Glorious Revolution. It does not mean that there was no effect at all. As just mentioned, the economy of Virginia was tied up primarily in the tobacco trade. Well, the colony had diversified some, and it did have a few other exports, tobacco was still king, and nothing got particularly close to challenging for that throne. The problem to having one cash crop is that there is very little safety net in the event of problems with that one crop. For the Virginia colonists, these problems would appear in the form of King William's wars. We have for a while now been talking about these wars, though not necessarily by name. However, all of the problems going on with the Indian tribes up in Maine, that was a theater of this war. Those tribes who were backed by the French were continually harassing the English. As a side effect of this conflict, there was a noticeable reduction in trade between the English and the North American colonies. This means that rather than hundreds of ships between England and Virginia during the early to mid-1690s, you were lucky to get a small handful of trading ships making it through. This had the effect of rendering huge amounts of tobacco completely worthless. This was enough to send Virginia into an economic depression. To make matters worse, consider that a large number of the salaries and transactions in Virginia were conducted using tobacco. This means at the very same time that the economy was faltering due to the lack of ships, the primary currency was now going through a period of intense deflation. Andros, as always, a stickler for the rules, refused to allow any kind of relief through piracy either. This should not come as a surprise as it fits with what we had previously seen from Andros in Massachusetts. Did Virginia need an influx of cash and trade? Oh yes, absolutely. Was Edmund Andros going to allow such an influx of much-needed cash and trade to come into Virginia via illegal trade with pirates? Absolutely not. Well, the flagrant disregard for the Navigation Acts had really been a hallmark of pre-Dominion Massachusetts. That is not to say that Virginia did not at least try to game the system. As was his job in New England, it was up to Edmund Andros to make sure that the Crown was getting their full share of the customs duties. It is important to consider this point, as it really gets to the very heart of the conflict that Andros was always going to face, as well as those underlying tensions that would remain between the colonies and England. The best interest of the colonies was not necessarily synonymous with the best interest of the empire at large. One of the biggest complaints of the colonists in Virginia is that England would only pay for premium tobacco. 
If the product was damaged at all, it was rendered all but worthless. This caused obvious problems for the colonists. First, it meant that huge amounts of labor was for naught, as tobacco that had any damage was just wasted product that they could not profit from. This might have been annoying at other times, but right now, the colony was in the middle of an economic downturn due to the ongoing war with France. Moving that product was critical, regardless of the crown's complaints. The trick to solve this problem was simple enough. You just simply mix the damaged product into the premium product. Nobody will notice and all is going to be right with the world. The imperial response to such measures, however, was to shrink the size of Hogshead, the name for bundled tobacco, to just 500 pounds. Smaller amounts would make it easier to detect colonists trying to sneak in less than premium tobacco. Likewise, limiting ports was also in the cards, as it would help control the product leaving from the colony from going out of ports where custom officials had little to no control. While Andros was tasked with ensuring that the trade was being conducted legally, he met with stiff resistance from the assembly when it came to passing such measures. It was, after all, the members of the assembly that required lax regulations in order to move the damaged product. What would emerge from this was a constant struggle between the House of Burgesses and Andros that would last throughout the entire period of King William's War which just so happened to be the vast majority of the time that Andros was in control. The colonists always pushed back against the governor in an effort to protect their own interests. By the time that Andros arrived in Virginia in 1793, the colony was likewise producing more tobacco than ever before. This is due in part to the sudden proliferation of slavery, as indentured servitude quickly began to fall out of use. Slavery had existed in the colony since 1619. However, at least initially, slavery appeared to function more in the model of indentured servitude than how we would later come to know it. In other words, there was an expiration date on an individual's period of bondage. Of course, that is not to say that being a slave was ever voluntary. To be clear, slaves had no choice in the matter. However, after the prescribed period of bondage, they would be granted their freedom. By the time we reached the end of the 17th century, however, the system had changed and slavery had become the period of lifelong bondage that we think of it as today. Following the end of Bacon's Rebellion, the demand for slaves quickly began to grow. A big reason for this change is that during the rebellion, the indentured servants easily became pawns in the Greater War. Slaves, at least in theory, were much easier to control. Furthermore, nobody in Virginia wanted to see a large, free, black population form, which, should you continue to treat slaves as indentured servants, one would expect to see eventually. Finally, if slave ownership was lifelong, and assuming that slaves could reproduce and create new slaves, from a financial perspective, it was far more economical to build up a large labor force made up of slaves over using indentured servants. With an indentured servant, you had them for a period of just seven years, and then you were out of luck. This is not to mention any kind of grants you're required to make to them at the end of their period of indenture. Slaves, on the other hand, were now lifelong commodities. You never had to release them from bondage. The children of slaves were also slaves, which meant that even in the case that the slave dies, the landowner is still protected in his investment with the slave's child. 
Upon his arrival, the rapidly growing slave population presented Andros with several problems that he was going to need to address. One of the biggest problems, and one that is not going to be unique to Virginia by any means, comes with controlling a large slave population. Large populations of slaves always pose a danger to the colony in general. Unsurprisingly, having a large, highly disgruntled group in the colony that has very little to lose is tenuous at best. The last thing that Andros wanted was a slave rebellion and sought to curb the risk of any such uprising from occurring. Among the measures that Andros took was limiting items that slaves could carry with them to prevent the slaves from turning them into makeshift weapons. Secondly, Andros passed a series of laws greatly reducing the free movement of slaves within the colony. What this meant practically is that for a slave to be traveling off of their plantation, they were now going to be required to carry a permit from their owner. The hope of such a law was to keep slaves from easily being able to gather in large groups and instead restrict them to smaller, more easily controlled geographical areas. Before we move on today, I do just want to make a programming note. We are going to talk a whole lot more about slavery later on this season. So if you are curious more about the system and how it came to be and how it would develop, we are going to get there in probably about 10 episodes time, so stay tuned. For Andros, the world of Virginia was much different than he had dealt with either in New England or in New York. For the first time, Andros would have to deal with the fact that the Virginia House of Burgesses existed. Andros had spent his entire career to date ruling over people who lacked any kind of representative government. This relationship between Andros and the legislature was always going to be interesting. The legislature had the ability to dole out money as well as propose laws. For Andros, this practically meant that he did not have the unilateral power that he had enjoyed previously during his long career. It is, however, worth noting that it is possible that Andros really did not completely object to the idea of some kind of representative assembly. Recall from our episode on the New York colonies that Andros had not actually been opposed to the cries of the people for an assembly. In fact, Andros had believed that such an assembly might have actually improved conditions on the ground. Of course, during the 1680s, there had been a move by the monarchy to consolidate power away from popular representation in the colonies and to centralize it. We see this most clearly in the creation of the Dominion of New England itself. Virginia had not been totally immune from this. For example, the House of Burgesses had lost its place as an appellate court during the 1680s in an attempt to curb the popular power of the colony. However, unlike with the Massachusetts Assembly, the House of Burgesses did survive. Andros was going to be reliant on the House of Burgesses to help pay for any extraordinary expenses that may come up during his time as the governor. So simply ignoring the assembly was not going to work for him. This is especially true because among those extraordinary expenses that Andros was going to have to get funding for was in the case of war. Well, Virginia was not going through the strife of Maine. Andros still wanted to ensure that the colony was well protected from potential French and Indian incursions. This was not just an empty threat either, or Andros being paranoid. Bad blood still existed between the English and the local tribes following the events that had led up to Bacon's Rebellion. While there had not been anything in the way of pitched battles, there continued to be harassment from the Indian tribes along the frontier. Upon arrival, Andros was immediately dealing with the fact that the colonial defenses were in a terrible state, 
and needed significant work in order to ensure the colony remained protected. In an attempt to properly defend the colony, Andros was going to need to work with the colonial assembly, a task that would often be fraught with tensions and disagreements. During his first several years as governor, Andros would request that the House of Burgesses send money to New York, with the hope being that by sending money on to New York, it would help curb the violence up there and keep it from spreading further down to the south and towards the Virginia frontier. The House of Burgesses did ultimately send some limited funds here and there. However, realistically, Virginia was already in a bad place economically and could not really afford the financial burden. Far more egregious to the colonists was a request from London that Virginia should send 240 men to New York to help defend the colony in 1696. This was deeply unpopular with everybody. Obviously, the colonists had zero interest in going to New York to help them fight their war. Even Edmund Andros recognized what a terrible mistake this would be for the colony. Armies were expensive to maintain, and Virginia simply did not have the funds. Likewise, they did not want to donate the men either. Andros, for his part, actually agreed with the colonists that the cost was too great, both in real numbers and in potential losses. Andros appealed to the crown, pointing out not the immediate losses, those that are related to raising and maintaining an army, but the potential losses from 240 men not being able to plant tobacco. Andros's time in power was dominated by battles between himself as a royal administrator and the House of Burgesses. The end of Andros in Virginia is not going to come as it did in the Dominion, but rather due to a changing of the political guard back at home. When Edmund Andros was ushered into power, it was while riding a wave of Tory support. By the middle part of the 1690s, however, Parliament had begun to move back in an increasingly Whig direction. As the Whigs gained power, there was interest in converting some of those more Tory governors into Whig governors. Andros held a powerful position and certainly was not a friend of the Whigs. The Whigs, in fact, wanted to move in a direction away from what had become popular. They viewed the best colonial policy as increasing the power of the assemblies and decreasing the power of the individual governor. The point of all this was to, hopefully, reduce the cost of colonial administration. Much of this push was led by the increasingly prominent John Locke, who by this point was something of an intellectual leader amongst the Whigs. Practically, it must also be considered that the Parliament became increasingly dominated by the Whigs during this time, and they wasted exactly zero time pointing out that Edmund Andros had, in fact, been a Stuart guy his entire life. Well, initially, this was not a huge problem for Andros. As discussed earlier, as the political winds began to change, it did become increasingly problematic. Meanwhile, enemies in the colonies, chiefly Francis Nicholson, did what he could to see Andros go. The animosity between Nicholson and Andros would go on to create a rivalry between Maryland, where Nicholson found himself, and Virginia, which would last through the duration of Andros's time in power. This would peak in a dispute over the proposed college of William and Mary. It was a project that Nicholson supported, which in return meant that it was a project that Andros opposed. Now, I'm not going to dive into the entire battle between the two men over the college, because though interesting, the actual substance of the dispute matters less than the fact that Nicholson and Andros squared off on different sides of the debate. This was an intensely personal fight between the two men, 
one that found its sources in a much different place than a debate over building a college. Ultimately, Andros found himself fighting an uphill battle. He was swimming against the current politically and struggled to make any kind of meaningful adjustment. Internally, he served over a colony that was economically depressed and an assembly that failed to ever fully trust him. Growing factionalism over the College of William and Mary, as well as another spat that emerged over the compensation of religious ministers, further dulled Andros's glow. The Whigs wanted him gone and saw him as a relic of a time that they were more than happy to move forward from. Personally, Francis Nicholson was still hurt over not getting the governorship previously and held a grudge against Andros. Nicholson would become the face of the anti-Andros movement in the colonies and would spend the majority of the 1690s plotting against him. Edmund Andros could see the writing on the wall, and on May 31, 1698, he requested permission to resign his post. He was replaced by Francis Nicholson in what must have been a bitter pill for Andros to swallow. Nicholson makes an interesting choice for the new role, considering that he himself had a lot of connections to the time before the Glorious Revolution, and he was also a Tory. However, his role in helping take down Andros got him the job. During the final days of Andros's time in power, Jamestown itself would suffer another devastating blow when a fire destroyed the state house. If you'll recall from our episode on Bacon's Rebellion, this marked the second time in the past 25 years that the capital city had suffered a devastating fire. There would not be an attempt to rebuild this time. The capital of the colony moved to the College of William and Mary, in a town that would soon become Williamsburg. Jamestown would slowly but surely begin to decay, following the capital leaving. Despite having spent nearly a century as the center of colonial life in Virginia, that time was now officially at an end. The town will play very little role moving forward. Not only does this episode mark something of an end of the storyline on Jamestown, but it does also mark the end of the road for Edmund Andros. Five weeks after Nicholson became the governor of Virginia, Edmund Andros departed the colony to return to London for good. He would never return to the colonies. Andros would remain in England working primarily on his home island of Guernsey until his death on February 19, 1714, at the age of 77. Andros was something of a holdover from an earlier era. A man who grew up during the English Civil Wars and who was to his very core a monarchist. He lived long enough to see the beginning of the decline of the system that he so believed in. The monarchy had been changed by the events of 1689. William III had been invited to the throne by Parliament. This would begin a long period of transferring power away from the king and into the hands of Parliament. Andros's legacy in the United States is far different. Though today he is largely a forgotten figure, his fingerprints are all over the final quarter of the 17th century. It is hard to argue that Andros is not one of the main players that can help explain the collapse of the Puritan stranglehold over Massachusetts. Andros would become the face of tyranny and arbitrary government in New England. Even after his downfall, the colony was never really able to become that place that it had been before. Andros's time in the colony had fundamentally changed it forever. Even in his overthrow, it was the hate towards him that forced the Puritan faction to have to team up with the moderates in order to rid themselves of Andros. 
because of this, nobody would ever really be able to claim his overthrow as being their own. The question therefore becomes, what is the legacy of Edmund Andros? This is a difficult thing to answer and really does depend on your individual position. For the crown, Andros was fantastic at what he did. Not necessarily because he was such a skilled governor. Evidence suggests that he really wasn't. What Andros was, however, was loyal. The guy was a deep believer in the power of monarchy and was a company guy to a fault. He was not somebody who was going to fly against the grain for his own personal benefit. Nobody is going to confuse Edmund Andros for William Berkeley. Andros followed the rules to the letter, and though he would occasionally protest, he would always follow his orders. This deep adherence to the rules and towards the monarchy would make him profoundly inflexible, something that would really come to define his legacy. It is interesting that this really was not always the case for Andros. Way back in episode 2.6 when we were talking about New York, we discussed the fact that Andros would turn a blind eye to Dutch ships entering New York Harbor in violation of the Navigation Acts. This does, on its face, seem strangely out of character for the man. However, consider that all of this took place before the exclusion crisis. Following that, we really do not see Andros ever show the slightest bit of flexibility again. Rather, what we see is a guy who is so completely inflexible that he often shot himself in the foot. The problem for Andros is that while the monarch may love the guy, because he was getting on board with the program, absolutely nobody else did. Think back to our episodes on the Dominion of New England, when Edmund Andros managed to alienate virtually everybody. In the case of the Dominion, that alienation between Andros and virtually all the colonists left him without any allies. The good thing about this, I suppose, is that when it came time to overthrow him, it was a bloodless rebellion. The lack of violence was not because of some egalitarian desire for a peaceful transition of power. This was very much an angry mob that had formed. The reason why the rebellion was bloodless is because there really was not anybody fighting back against the angry mob. Nobody was there to defend Andros because the guy was all but friendless. Of course, lest we be too rough on Andros, none of this is to suggest that he was somehow without talents. Andros proved time and time again that he was a skilled diplomat. More than once, we see him work out agreements with Indian tribes, and he did make significant contributions when it came to forging alliances with Native Americans, especially in regards to the Iroquois. It was through the actions of Andros that the back of the natives during King Philip's War was largely broken. This was a task accomplished not with the help of English soldiers, but rather through his alliances that he was able to form with rival tribes. Despite the fact that Andros did have his talents and was by all rights a very smart man, it is his inability to be flexible that would really define his legacy. His overly rigid adherence to the rules meant that while he remained popular amongst the monarchs back in London, he struggled as a practical administrator on the ground. It is also interesting to note that upon his death, his estate was only worth 2,300 pounds, a rather paltry sum for a man who had spent so much of his life as a royal governor. This is further proof that Andros, despite everything else we can say about him, was not using his position for greater personal enrichment. Regardless of his legacy, 
Edmund Andros had spent nearly a quarter of a century as one of the most powerful colonial administrators, which, for our story, is something that we cannot overlook. Next time, we are going to turn our focus back over to Pennsylvania. It has been a while since we have dropped in on our favorite Quaker colony and seen what they are up to. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here then as we head back to Pennsylvania. <laughs>